This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Jay Kim, host of The Jay Kim Show and author of Hack Your Fitness. We discuss the chronology behind the rise of the Hong Kong startup ecosystem and his perspectives on the community. Hi, Jay. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. And thanks for inviting me to your show. So how has it been for you? Very good. I'm very happy to be here. And thank you for the opportunity, Bernard. And I'm talking to Jay Kim investment professional and founder of The J. Kim Show. And you're based in Hong Kong, right? That's right. I've been here since 2005. So I kind of moved over here. You know, I was working, you know, my, I met a girl and got married and I settled down. I have a family now here and I've been here ever since. So Hong Kong is one of those places where it's easy for that to happen, where you can kind of just land and fall in love with the place and never leave. So I found myself in that exact situation. <laughs> so we are now in reverse positions because I want to thank you for inviting me to come on your show. So I wanted to now get to know you better. So how do you start your career then? Well, I mean, I love being on the other side as well. As a fellow podcast, you know, we're used to asking all the questions and being very good listeners. And so it's nice to be on the other side for once. So thank you again. I was an investment banker working at a large investment bank in New York. I started my career there. I literally, I moved up to New York after college the summer of 2001, which was 9-11. And so two months after I moved up there, 9-11 happened and it was just a bad time in the markets. So the next couple of years were quite interesting. And one of the opportunities that I had at the time was I was working for Lehman Brothers, which doesn't exist anymore. The company, there was an opportunity for me to relocate for a year in Tokyo. And so there was need for people, staff to be over there. I jumped at the opportunity, never lived in Asia before. I'm very westernized, ABK, American born Korean. My parents were first generation immigrants into the US. So I'd never really spent a lot of time in Asia. And so I had a desire to experience Asian culture for myself, not just on family trips and whatnot. So I I took the opportunity. I landed over in Tokyo uh, working for Lehman Brothers there. I was just fascinated by everything that I just soaked it all in. And I I loved the culture. I loved (laughs) not being a minority for once. And just really, I just felt like I was meant to be in Asia. After my one year stint was over, I went back to work in the New York office for a year. And I essentially, I was working as a convertible bond trader. So I was on the CB desk. And the CB market was starting to dry up a bit there. A lot of weird things were happening. And it was early on. And I was very junior at the time. I was Oh, I spent a lot of time getting coffees for the for the trading desk and, and doing that this sort of thing. And I really just wanted to I needed a change. And I, and I didn't see a, a future there for me or or it would have been a very long, uh, steep climb for me. So I decided to just pack up and and move over to Hong Kong. Now, I had a couple close friends, high school friends of mine 
who were from originally from Hong Kong. And so fortunate enough to move over here. And one of them let me crash on his couch for the first month or two until I found a place to live. And I just started networking and I, I found another job here in Hong Kong, also working for an investment bank. And this time I joined equity sales. So I was actually on the sales team at uh, another investment bank that doesn't exist. It's called Bear Stearns. It was there where, you know, I, I was exposed to a different part of the business in sales, but it really allowed me to learn how business was sort of done in Asia. And Asia was always sort of a satellite operation for many of the large organizations, corporations, multinationals. Asia was never a focus. And so the challenge of being in Asia and trying to bring business and make that business profitable was eye-opening. And so I remember looking at P&L sheets of the global revenue and Asia was just literally a rounding error. So it was our challenge to try to boost that revenue and try to put make a name for ourselves in Asia and but at the same time you know it was it was a good culture there were a lot of good people that I worked with and back then of course before 2008 it was the heydays of Wall Street and so a lot of the positive and the negative stuff that came along with that sort of bubble if you will I was able to experience just a little bit of the tail end of that so yeah I mean that was my first landing into Hong Kong and you know it wasn't until 2008 when when the global financial crisis hit that I started really taking a, a second look at my career and what I wanted to do with my life. And it took me a while to figure out and pinpoint what I had interests in. And, and that was when I sort of started surveying the landscape in Hong Kong, because I thought, look, there's more to Hong Kong than just banking. Obviously, Hong Kong is a, one of the global financial centers. It was very much the prominent one in Asia along with Tokyo. But with what's happened in China over the last decade, you know, that we're starting to see a shift in that. And so it was a very interesting time for me, but it was a good introduction to me. And so that's where I began my career. So in that whole shift in your career, what are the kind of interesting lessons that you can actually share with my audience then? Sure. So having gone from a corporate, very, very corporate job and having worked for a large portion of my career, you know, in a large institution, I was fully intricately aware of the inner workings of a large machine and, and what it feels like to be part, a cog in the large organization. There's pros and cons. So since the global financial crisis, I have not really worked at a large corporation since then because my preference now is to work at smaller companies or startups. But the good thing about working for a large organization is basically if you find the right team, there's a lot of team camaraderie. And so that's that was the first thing that attracted me when I joined Bear Stearns in Hong Kong. It was a great team. There was this really good culture. It was work hard, play hard. We had a great, you know, we were, the team was so close that we would hang out on the weekends, our families all knew each other. It was a very team mentality. And so it's rare to find that within large organizations. But if you can find that, that could be very rewarding to be part of a team like that. You know, I played team sports all growing up and in high school and college. And so I missed that aspect of my life. And, and professionally, if you're able to get that, that's a good thing. The other thing that I realized within a large organization, and this ties in directly with what happened is with the financial crisis, is that at the end of the day, because you're part of a, a large organization, you don't really control anything. Your fate is tied directly to the firm, the profitability of the firm or the, the, the general larger 
global macro geopolitical situation in the world. No one imagined that one of the top five, two of the top five global investment banks would go under. That was out of the realm of possibility in anyone's mind. And so it was a big shock when that happened. It was just a wake up call. And it made a lot of people realize, look, you know, you could have the best job in the world working for the best company in the world. But at the end of the day, you're still an employee. It was a very eye-opening experience for me, and it made me realize that, look, unless you are part of something that you truly love and you have sort of skin in the game, you never, if you can't directly control the future of the firm, then it's very difficult. You, you might find yourself out on the street, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way life is. So at least if you are working in a smaller organization where you can directly impact the future of the firm, if the, the firm's in trouble, you can you can do everything it takes to, to save it or pour your resources into trying to turn the company around. At least you have some sort of control. So there's a bit of helplessness when you work in a large organization. And the last lesson that I learned, so to speak, working in a large organization, I would say, is having gone through that and then having done some entrepreneurial stuff afterwards, having worked at a number of startups, I can tell you that it's actually a lot easier working in a large organization than a startup. And the reason I say that is because working in a large organization, there are ways to get around. You, you can kind of coast. Once you have got your footing and your grounding, you can kind of figure out what the minimum amount that you need to do to get by and to not get fired, basically. And the, co the company itself does a very good job of compensating you accordingly. So they'll pay you just enough to keep you slightly incentivized to stick around, but they're not going to pay you too much because then, you know, that, that could cause problems internally or you might... If they don't pay you enough, just enough, then you're going to go look for a new job anyway. So they've streamlined the compensation process. They figured out what's the least amount of money I need to pay an employee to get him to stick around and and somewhat be happy, but not, you know, not happy enough that he is is going to be, you know, try to take over the company. So you can actually once you're plugged into that large organization, you can kind of coast. You can do a little bit of politics and coast. As long as the firm doesn't go under, you can you can coast along, collect a nice paycheck. If the firm does well, you get a nice bonus. If it doesn't, you don't get a bonus, but you you probably won't lose your job. On the flip side, if you work for a startup, it's a lot of hard work. It's no guarantees of upside. If the company go doesn't do well or you go under, then you're out of the job. It's going to be much harder to get another job. It's just a higher risk proposition there. So you end up working, I think, a lot harder if you have skin in the game, if you're working at a startup. I'm here to talk to you about the Hong Kong startup ecosystem. I came starting from the 2009 to 2017. I spoke to Casey Lau some time back, I think, about the Hong Kong startup ecosystem. So in your perspective, can you offer a comprehensive overview of how the Hong Kong startup ecosystem has evolved from 2009 to today? Sure, absolutely. Man, it's it's night and day, I would tell you, Bernard. Casey's a good guy. We've just recently had him on my show as well. He's very active in the ecosystem here. So we, we love having him. So essentially, when this kind of goes along with my story as well. So after 2008, I started looking at early stage investing because it was interesting to me. And I was attending some conferences in Silicon Valley. The Hong Kong startup ecosystem was essentially non-existent. It was extremely nascent. There was literally nothing. 
everything around. There was Cyberport had just sort of started. There was Science Park here. Invest HK was much more geared towards bringing companies in like mezzanine and above type businesses, not startups, but larger businesses that were looking to expand and have an Asian footprint. They were more focused on helping those companies and being the go-between there and assisting, facilitating that transition as opposed to startups itself. So Start Me Up Hong Kong, which is the arm of the, the government underneath InvestHK, that didn't even exist. There was no, literally no ecosystem. When I surveyed the ecosystem here, I said, look, there's nothing here. That's why I basically spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. So I started going to Silicon Valley, attending conferences, looking at startups. I did some angel investing myself, and I just started to learn, teach myself about, educate myself about early stage investing as an asset class. Now, within the next two to three years, there were a group of us that stumbled upon the same thing. And some of those were, include Casey Lau, Jean Su, and the two of them, along with, I think, another one or two partners, they started Startups HK. That was sort of the first organization that was non-government affiliated that was really, and they were just doing it for free. I don't think they have a revenue model, to be honest, at this point. Their whole thing is just, look, we want to spread the good word. We want to build an ecosystem, build a neutral ground and help promote startups and early stage investing in Hong Kong. That was how they started. And I think there was one, one co-working space called Cocoon, which still exists now. But if you look from then until now, the ecosystem has changed massively. So there were a couple of years, I think between 2011 and say 14, was like the growing years. So there, you would see a couple of things pop up. There'd be one more conference. You'd see a couple of big names from Silicon Valley coming through, swinging through, maybe giving a keynote speech. Nothing super organized. When I started really seeing traction was around 2014. 2013, I believe, is when InvestHK officially launched Start Me Up Hong Kong because they realized, look, there's a lot of companies a lot of talent in Hong Kong that want to do startups and they just don't have the government support. So as you know, Hong Kong, unlike your country, Singapore, it does not provide as much uh, government support. I mean, only until very, very recently where they just literally in January, I think, or maybe end of last year, it, uh, announced the Innovation Fund, which is tiny compared to some of the support. I mean, you guys, was it two weeks ago that they, there was an announcement about there was like a $1 billion Singapore co, co-managed fund, right, that launched to help companies in innovation? Our Hong Kong fu- fund is is much smaller than that. It's $2 billion honky, which is like $300 million US. So maybe a third of the size of the Singapore government support. But that said, so in between 2014 and now, in the last three years, I would say there's an explosion, explosion of, of activity within the ecosystem. I think as of 2000, end of 2016, there was something like 2,000 startups within Hong Kong, over 50 co-work incubation platform or accelerator program spaces in Hong Kong. And like I said, in 2010, there was one, it was a cocoon. There's a lot of government support now. Start Me Up HK, this is the third year, I think, that they did the, this is the second year or third year, they did the, the big Start Me Up HK festival in the first week of January. And that's, last year was the big splash because we had Elon Musk as the keynote speaker. This year, obviously, there was a lot of follow-on enthusiasm 
over 5,000 conference attendees from all around the world attend that conference. And there's a second big conference that the government actually puts on. It's the FinTech conference. That's in November. And so, you know, I, so for the record, I have no affiliation with the government. I have worked with them very closely because I've always been passionate about the ecosystem and helping out the ecosystem here in Hong Kong. If you want to say the difference between 2009 and 2000 today is literally night and day. I mean, now you can't walk. I can't go a week. My email inbox doesn't go a week, a day without getting two or three different emails talking about startup events, ecosystems, just community events, government sponsored events, just a slew of things happening right now. And so you can feel the buzz in the city, a buzz that wasn't there five years ago. Speaking of Casey, he's uh, one of the partners or helping to organize the RISE conference. This is the third year that they've had it. And it's, you know, Web Summit is one of the largest mobile tech conferences in the world, which is uh, out of Lisbon usually, or I think Dublin is where Petty Cosgrove is originated from. But, you know, they've made a name for themselves and now they have RISE, which is the Asia flagship event within their brand. So, and that's a huge, huge conference. It's really, really come far a long way by leaps and bounds. And I'm really happy to see it it progress this much. So that's basically the large overview of the Hong Kong ecosystem. In the past three years since it has exploded, which are the interesting startups you have seen? Ah, well, that's a good question. There's a couple actually that I'm, I'm quite close with because I've either met the founders or I, I know some of the key VC investors that have invested in them. So let's talk about one that I recently just had on the podcast this week, actually, and it's called Auto. And last week they just an announced their Series A round, which was $6 million. And it's from Times of India, which is the largest media conglomerate in India. They were the lead on the round. And Audup is basically a ranking system for startups. So it's a startup itself, but they rate startups. So if you think about the public equity stock, stock market and how there are stock analysts on the street that rate a company as a buy, hold or sell, for example, Apple or Google, you know, there's analysts on the street that analyze these companies and they give a trade recommendation whether you should buy, hold or sell it. The same way as public equity market has those analysts rating the stocks, this company Audup is replicating that model and trying to do that in the private equity space. And so one of the, the CEO, his name is James Giancotti, he's just a really nice guy. He also gives a lot back to the community here. He was has a research background from Goldman Sachs and he was a VC investor for a while himself. And then he realized, look, there's not a lot of transparency. And if you're an investor, particularly if you're a smaller investor, say an angel investor, or maybe you're an overseas institutional investor, and obviously we both know that Asia doesn't have much transparency, even in public list, listed equities, let alone private equity. You know, how do you get more information about these companies? How can, there's no dedicated resource or platform or centralized database where you can go and dig up information and do due diligence on companies if you want to look to invest invest. That's his whole thing. He's setting up this wonderful platform and that's really, it's doing really well. I'm very positive, bullish on his company because I think that he actually is solving a very difficult problem and there's a need for it. So that's one of the companies on my radar that they came out through, they were 500 startups. They went through their program. They've been doing really well. And James is a good friend of mine. So another company in Hong Kong that, again, I recently connected with is a company called Lala Move. And they used to be called Easy Van, I believe. 
So Hong Kong is very well known for logistics. They have very smooth logistics. Just being a port, it's kind of built that infrastructure. It's it's embedded. And a lot of the shipping that comes in to China has required that there's good infrastructure within the city. And so there's a couple of companies that came up and tried to exploit that. The first one that I heard about a couple years ago was GoGoVan. I, I actually was friendly with one of the interim investors slash CEO. He came in for a while to help them. That's a great story there. Another one of Hong Kong's heroes. So EasyVan is, is a guy named Xing Chao. He has a very, very interesting backstory, actually, Bernard. He's actually someone you might consider getting on your show as well. He used to be a Strat consultant at McKinsey. <laughs> And then he quit after a couple of years and he was became a professional poker player because he basically said, look, I'm going to I can make money playing poker. And so he spent, I think, six years grinding it out as a poker player, didn't make any money for the first four years. Finally, in the last two years, he made a lot of money enough that he could then seed this company himself, which essentially became Lalamove. And so what they basically do is they're, it's a similar model to GoGoVan. It's like a Uber cargo type model where you can hire a van to move anything logistically. So, and they are doing extremely well. They're uh, rapidly expanding into China and into Southeast Asia. Another Hong Kong rising star that I definitely have my eye on and I have high hopes for. And one final startup that's on my radar is actually a, a clothing company called Grana. It's a fast fashion, very simple, casual clothes company. And, you know, I spoke to Luke Grana, who is the founder recently, and he's also a very good guy, came up to Hong Kong from Australia with this business. And the reason he did that was because the proximity of Hong Kong and because of the fact that he was able to secure really good global shipping rates with DHL. Again, logistics being one of the strong suits of Hong Kong as a city. So he moves his operation up to Hong Kong and they basically can do global shipping, overnight global shipping at an extremely competitive rate. Their styles are very sort of modern, trendy, slightly edgy, but not too evocative and just really good clothes, you know, and they basically keep very low inventory because they've cut out sort of the middleman and it's direct to consumer. So they source the material, they basically create the piece of clothing and then it ships direct to consumer. And so they're able to cut out all the middlemen. Interesting thing that he said was he has often has this problem where things that are popular, they go out of stock very quickly. It's kind of like a good problem to have. It's funny when you compare that business model to the large fast fashion business models such as Zara or H&M or the likes of that, they are the opposite. They always carry three to six months of inventory ahead of time for the next season because their worst nightmares, they don't ever want to run out of stock. And so, but when you go that way, then you end up with excess inventory on the goods that don't sell. And then you end up having to do after season sales, you know, slash the prices, trying to offload the inventory. And so his is the other way around. They sort of reverse engineer it. They, they put out their lines and whichever one they get feedback from that sell out the quickest, they realize that that's the one that's in higher demand and they can go back and quickly try to back order and fill those orders. So those are three of the ones that are on my radar. So I want to go in, into a little bit of the Hong Kong startups ecosystem categories. Which are the categories that the ecosystem seems to have excelled in? Right. So I would say you're, you're talking about just the ecosystem here in general. Like, for example, maybe fintech is something that is very dominant because the banking industry is there. 
Correct. Yes, you're right. Fintech is obviously a natural segue because of the banking. Being a global financial center, well, <laughs> there's a big debate that Hong Kong's losing its competitiveness now as a global financial center to Shanghai, potentially. But as of right now, I still believe that it is, in fact, a global financial center. So there is a real big opportunity here. And I believe the opportunity is to become, you know, one of the top three or so global uh, fintech hubs. And so, the Hong, like I said, the Hong Kong government, they have a annual fintech event, which is in November, I believe. And it's also caught a lot of buzz. That is definitely one of the sectors that Hong Kong excels in. You know, again, as, as I was talking about logistics and Hong Kong and it, its proximity to China, particularly Shenzhen, which is a short 45-minute train ride away. And, you know, it's now, as you know, Shenzhen is being touted as the Silicon Valley of China. I just, I literally today, this morning, read another article in The Economist talking about how Shenzhen is the Silicon Valley or becoming the Silicon Valley and it's no longer copycats, but it's innovation that's driving it. And so it's really good to see that. And Hong Kong, by virtue of the fact that it is centrally located in Asia, it is virtually a five-hour flight from in a radius, five-hour flight from half the entire world's population because of China and India. And so because of its proximity to Shenzhen, I think that hardware is definitely, you know, one of its strengths. And I think that there's actually certain, the government recognizes this. And so they've started aggressively trying to support this as well. You know, recent, earlier this year in January, the government uh, announced a, a couple more things. There was something called The Loop, which is kind of like a science park in between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. And it's basically, I think CY Long said it was the largest innovation and technology platform that Hong Kong has ever seen. And it's basically will be, it was very strategically positioned between the border of Hong Kong and Shenzhen to support that the hardware boom. So obviously, you know, Shenzhen, Tencent, and, and they have a lot of the tech companies there, DJI, which is that drone company, which is their new rising star. But I think that Hong Kong, being in Hong Kong and having that access to Shenzhen, literally 45 minutes away. And I believe that's actually going to get shorter because they have high-speed trains coming in soon that will be able to take you up there, I think, in 20 minutes. I think that's the, the last number that I heard. So within, I think, two years' time, those trains will be in. I can't say anything about the safety of Chinese trains, but <laughs> I think for 20 minutes, it should be okay going up to Shenzhen. How is the investor scene like in Hong Kong startup ecosystem today? I mean, you have very early stage startup investors that are known in the community but you also have those that are very owned by the movers and shakers such as the Cushing's uh, Horizon Ventures so uh, since you have an investment background and you probably know most of the investors within the ecosystem how do you see that change right that's a very good question Bernard it's a question that many people ask and I've like you said I've been witnessing it the entire time. And so let's start from 2009. Back then, when I surveyed the landscape of investors, it was literally, that's it, that you just named it. I mean, it was Horizons Ventures. And unfortunately, they really don't 
support the Hong Kong ecosystem. And I don't it's I don't think it's on purpose. The Horizons Ventures is part of Li Kaoxing's foundation. They have a very strict mandate on what they invest in. And it's essentially it doesn't include the early stage invest investment opportunities in Hong Kong. So that's a little bit of an unfortunate thing. But that said, basically, it was very nascent. Again, in 2009, there was no interest in early stage investing in Hong Kong. And part of the reason is there were no no opportunities to invest in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong as a investor ecosystem is very interesting. And this always has been a challenge for us. When I say us is I mean advocates of growing the ecosystem and moving it along. So the biggest challenge is I found was investor education. Basically, when I came here and I started looking around at startups 2009, 2010, there was no awareness on what early stage investing early early stage investing was not seen as an asset class by anyone. So it starts from two places, the government and from uh, the private sector, which is, and that would be high net worth individuals. And so if you think about how people in Hong Kong made their money, it's predominantly through real estate. So it's the real estate investor, people made a bunny flipping apartments or the real estate developers or people that built manufacturing SMEs, they would make more money on their actual real estate than their core business. You have these real estate investors that have made money one way and then the second way that they look to make money is the stock market. And so they think that both of these methods are the only viable methods to invest. So early stage investing, if you do it correctly, can be even less risky than betting the stock market if you don't know what you're doing. But for some reason, they weren't educated enough to realize this. Okay, so the first challenge that we faced was education, investor education. And so for a long time, what I was trying to do, and I was working closely with the government, Hong Kong government, is to bring speakers in, bring prominent VC investors in. Let's teach the ecosystem here that early stage investing is not, it, it is a viable asset class if you know what you're doing. And here are the professionals that can teach you that, okay? So this was a big challenge for us. And this is the same reason that people like Casey Lau started his organization. And the same reason why, you know, Start Me Up Hong Kong was started because there's a there's demand, there's thirst for this type of knowledge, but no one had the expertise to teach them. Okay, and then so the second issue that we have here in Hong Kong is that there was a lack of opportunity, there was a lack of talent. It's a vicious circle because when people, when startup founders, they come to Hong Kong and they realize, hey, look, there's no investment money here. Why should I stick around? So maybe they're homegrown Hong Kong entrepreneurs. But as soon as they get to reach that point where they're getting tra traction, they're getting leverage, they might be able to fundraise. They're going to leave. They're going to go to Silicon Valley. They're going to go to other ecosystems where there are prominent investors that can actually support their business and their growth. So this is the, the this was the second big problem. So how I see it is now how I see it is fast forward again a few years. We've come a long way. There's a lot more investor education out there. There's a lot more investors out there now. So there's a number of prominent VC investors now. I would say five or six super investors in Hong Kong now. I actually don't really count Li Ka-shing's Horizons Ventures anymore because they're not involved in day-to-day -day investing in Hong Kong startups. So the ones that come to mind are people like Vector Ventures, which is Alan Chen. He runs this little uh, studio and he has he does a lot of investing in Asia and in Hong Kong. There's one called Mindworks Ventures by David Chang. 
also a Hong Kong guy and he's very in Hong Kong and China. He's a very big advocate of Hong Kong. He was one of the investors in the recent round at Lala Move, the company that I mentioned earlier. There's uh, Fresco Capital, which is Titus Mikalski. He's an old hand in the game. You know, he used to be a hedge fund guy as well. And he started private equity investing in 2008 as well after the financial crisis, he sold his hedge fund and he started doing PE stuff. And he's very active. Gives he's a, he's a giver as well in the community. There's Nest, which is Simon Squibb, who's also a big super angel type guy. So there's four or five of these guys. There's a lot of family offices now that are also involved and interested in early stage investing. And it's not because it's usually what it is is it's not the the patriarch's money. It's the second or third gen that actually is you know aware and has come up in the time of the facebooks and you know the snapchats and they're more aware of how technology and early stage investing is actually can be lucrative and so a lot of times what happens is these people come in and they take their own money first and they'll invest a little bit and try to build a track record and then if they do well they can go back and ask daddy okay can i have a little bit of the family capital to invest in early stage. So that's essentially where we are at. We're still not fully there. We still have a long way to go to where it's a fully mature investor ecosystem. And unfortunately, that's going to be a result, you know, it's going to be a byproduct of Hong Kong being able to produce investable companies. You know, if Hong Kong has a unicorn exit in, in the next, you know, several years, then that'll really put us on the map, I believe. And all of a sudden, investors' attention will be turned back to Hong Kong. That's so much we talk about in terms of the Hong Kong startup ecosystem. So I'm going to get very quickly to talk about your show, okay? The J. Kim Show. What's the backstory behind how you decided on to create this podcast? You know, it's interesting. I was just talking about how, you know, the challenge of Hong Kong was the, the lack of education and community, this sort of thing. And when... I took a look in 2014, I'd realized that, hey, you know, Hong Kong's come a long way. And so initially what I was trying to do was I was trying to bring speakers over here, VC, prominent VC investors, entrepreneurs, world-class business leaders. I wanted to bring them over for conferences and just to teach the audience that, look, this is how we do it in the in Silicon Valley. Here's how we should replicate this model, build an ecosystem here, right? So I looked in 2014 and I was like, hey, there's enough of that, enough people are doing this now. So let me think about how else can I serve the community here, right? And then I myself am a huge consumer of podcast content. So I love listening to, you know, I have a about a 35 minute commute now going to work and I love listening to podcasts on my commute. I just started thinking, I was like, look, there's no one here in Hong Kong doing a podcast. And there's a lot of people that don't even know what podcasts here are. I put two and three together, and this is a funny story, Bernard, because I actually tried to go work with InvestHK on this because Charles Ng at InvestHK is a close friend of mine, and I presented this idea to him, actually, and I said, we've talked about this, we've struggled with putting InvestHK and putting Hong Kong on the map. I said, this is the perfect way to do it. You guys should start a podcast. You have the resources, you have access to high-level speakers. It costs nothing virtually nothing. I mean, you know, it's self-funded and you could just do it because it'll get your name out there. It's digital product. You you have a huge reach. You'll have an audience. And they were like, hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. And if you've done anything with the government, you know that things take 10x the time that they normally do. And so finally, I was getting frustrated because it was such a good idea and I wanted 
to get involved and I offered to help them with it for free. <laughs> of course, them being the government, they can't accept anything for free. And so finally, I just said, well, I'm just going to start one on my own. I mid 2016, this was last year, middle of 2016, I just start, started my own show, but I didn't launch officially until January. So I just started reaching out to the people that I'd been following, some of my business contacts, and I just started asking them, hey, you know, I'm going to do a podcast, probably the first one in Hong Kong on entre entrepreneurship and investing. Would you like to be a guest? And I got a lot of positive feedback. And I timed it, the launch, to be in conjunction with the Start Me Up Hong Kong Festival in mid-January 2017. Yeah, and here I am. And it's funny because when I was surveying Asia and the podcast available, there were only two others that I came up with. One was yours, Analyze Asia. And there was another one called China Business Cast, which is based out of China. And it's two guys that do it up there. And that's it. And so I said, this is a golden opportunity. Podcasting is only going to go one direction. It's going to only going to keep growing. Spoken word audio content is only going to get, you know, be more proliferated. And this is a great, perfect way for me to, at a very low cost, provide value and impact a large audience. And so that's why I decided to do it. <laughs> you know, whenever I listen to your show, it's a little bit very similar to uh, what Tim Ferriss is doing. He interviews leaders. He also interviews people who talk about fitness as well, about mindfulness. Is that the intended audience for your podcast as well? Well, to be honest, when I first started, you know, I have a much more clear picture of what my audience is like now. But when I first started, I had no clue who would even listen to me. I basically was trying to reverse engineer the audiences from some of those large podcasts that I listened to, you know? So I was fortunate enough to have some big names like Gary Vaynerchuk and James Altucher on my show. And, you know, those types of people drew in this big entrepreneurship community. But the funny thing is, fast forward when I, because I actually, it wasn't just entrepreneurs that I was, I was interviewing. Part of it was I was also celebrating Hong Kong startups or giving some glimpses of what Asia, the Asia ecosystem looks like. So the feedback that I've gotten now, you know, I'm at almost episode 40 now because I did a bunch at the beginning. But the feedback that I've gotten is the ones that really, really took off were not the ones that I thought would be the, the big ones. Okay, from just a pure download perspective, yes, the big names, Gary Vaynerchuk, those names, those were the big download ones. But the ones where I feel like my community, the people that really listen to me weekly on a weekly basis, the ones that they connected with me on were the ones that were profiling Asia in some capacity. Like what is going on in fintech in Asia? Who is this guy, Danny Young, that sold, was the CEO of Groupon Hong Kong and sold and now he's doing Prenetics, you know? Who is Kylie Ng, you know, the 500 startups managing partner of Southeast Asia? And what, what is he going on about, about capitalism? And what stocks are he, or what companies are he, is he investing in? Who is Siu Ray Kwek of Carousel? What is Carousel? What, what does that app do? It was these companies that made the biggest impact on my audience. And so it's very similar to what you told me that the people, the audience that, was coming back to you were was literally the ones that were want to either set up businesses in Asia or were doing research on the market here, right? So I found that fascinating. And, you know, I mean, your show is completely targeted towards, I mean, the name Analyze Asia, right? That, that says it all. For me, 
I didn't know where what my audience would be. I just had the 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 aim was actually initially I want to provide value to Hong Kong listeners, but then it turns out most of my listeners aren't based in Hong Kong. They're actually based overseas and the reason they're listening to my podcast is they want to know what's going on in, in Asia. And so I'm slowly shifting my focus to try to profile more Asian Asian investments, Asian entrepreneurs and just Asia ecosystem coverage. Obviously, I still I love connecting with, you know, sort of just global leaders and entrepreneurs that have good lessons to to teach. So I'll still definitely always be doing them, but I think I'll definitely have a shift in my ratio. This is my penultimate question. You have recently written a book called Hack Your Fitness. So very quickly, tell me what is the motivation behind the book and who is it intended for? <laughs> Well, thank you for allowing me to plug the book. <laughs> Hack Your Fitness is the result of about 15 years of my personal struggle and pain trying to get lean. And I was always, I'm not a fitness guy. I'm a fitness guy, but I'm not like a super duper fitness guy. I basically, after working on, you know, in finance and desk jobs and this and that, After about 10 years, I realized I was overweight. I wasn't watching my diet. You know, I was exercising, but I wasn't watching what I ate. And my physique just went really bad, really south. I was wondering, I was spinning my wheels trying to figure out how do I get lean? How come it's not working? I'm, I read as many men's health magazines and muscle and fitness out there. Nothing seemed to work. I'd spend hours a day browsing the internet reading articles on cool, weird tricks on how to burn fat and nothing worked. And so finally, after all this struggle, I finally realized I need to just learn the science behind what's going on. And so Hack Your Fitness is the culmination of 15 years of pain and personal struggle. And it's basically the book that gives you the least amount of information you need to get lean in the shortest amount of time possible. That's why I call it the hack. So basically, it's not like a biohack. It has nothing to do. You don't take any weird supplements or chemicals or ketogenic diet, nothing like that. It's just basically teaching you the simple science behind calories in, calories out, macronutrient balance. You basically learn the essential compound lifts in the gym, like squatting, deadlifting, and pressing. You can do it in three hours a week. I work out three times a week, 45 minutes to an hour each. And I really spend a lot of time minding my diet. So it's fitness is 85% diet, 15% exercise, in my opinion. And so this is the system that I wish someone had given me 15 years ago when I was spinning my wheels and I was not successful in, in, in getting lean or getting fit. And so I finally figured out what I needed. And it's very geared towards people like you and I, full-time working professionals that Don't we aren't like fitness, you know, junkies. We're not the guys out there on Instagram flexing and showing off our six packs. We work full time jobs. We have families. We have multiple side hustles and businesses. And we just don't have time to be in the gym six days a week. But we want to we care about our health and fitness directly affects your productivity as an entrepreneur. And so it's a very important part of your life. And so that's why it's very geared towards people like us. And it's the, the simple solution that will help you stay lean for the rest of your life. Here comes my final question. And you know what is that? Thank you for coming on the show and talk about the Hong Kong startup ecosystem. And also, of course, your own podcast and your book. Definitely will get you back. So help my audience. How do they find you? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Bernard. It's been such a pleasure. I'm on all the usual social media channels, Jay Kimmer 
on Twitter. It's jkimshow.com for the podcast. My Facebook profile is just jkimshow as well. You know, you can, the fitness stuff is hackyor.fitness. If you, uh, you know, I have a free guide there if you want to, if you want, if you're interested in that. You can email me or you can tweet me at jkimmer. I, I answer every tweet. If you have any questions or, or you just want to chat, then feel free to hit me up. And you can find me at blongcwbernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, TuneIn, and of course, Google Play in the US market. Rate us five stars on iTunes Store. Recommend us on Overcast. And of course, drop me a comment from time to time. Once again, Jay, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Bernard. It's been such a pleasure. Really appreciate it.